This time, children ages three to six are dismissed for Children's Church. Chelsea's waiting for you at the back. So today we are resuming our sermon series in the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark and part 20, Divine Power Over the Climate, Anxiety, and Fear. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, more powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you speak through it. That it is not simply words spoken long ago in the past, but instead they are here for us today. So I pray, Lord, open the ears of our heart, open our minds, that we can hear your word, that you would speak to us, that we could receive it. And so I ask that you would speak through these words, through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early morning hours of March 18th, 1990, 13 works of art were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, what happened was the security guards on watch that night were suddenly uh, startled to hear the doorbell ringing, the buzzer sounding outside the museum in the middle of the night. And when they looked at the security cameras, there were two men dressed as police officers who then told them that they were there to investigate a disturbance call. Now, the guards didn't know anything about a disturbance in the museum that night, but seeing as they were dressed in uniform as policemen, they opened the doors, buzzed them in. However, upon gaining entry, the thieves, who had been posing as policemen, tied the guards up and proceeded to loot the museum over the next hour and a half. To this very day, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum robbery case remains unsolved. It would be a great episode on unsolved mysteries. Back in 1990, the FBI valued the stolen works of art at $200 million. Today, 33 years later, that valuation has risen to $600 million. Today, it stands alone as the single highest value museum robbery in American history. Now, among those 13 stolen works of art was Rembrandt's only seascape entitled The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I have the picture of it here for us to consider this morning. Now, if you've seen this picture before, anywhere hanging perhaps in, a, uh, in someone's basement or on their wall or in a museum, it's one of Rembrandt's famous works of art. Its estimated value today is around 200 to $250 million. So it, this painting is a good chunk of that $600 million evaluation. Now, if you find this painting or see it hanging in someone's basement or you stumble upon it at a yard sale, for instance, uh, bear in mind that there's a standing reward to this very day by the FBI and the museum of $10 million to anyone who can help locate this work of art in one piece. Now, Rembrandt painted this back in 1633. And if you look at it, it's a rather close-up view of Christ and his disciples struggling frantically against the heavy storm, attempting to regain control of their fishing boat. We can see the huge waves beating the bow and ripping at the sails. We see Jesus, if we look closely, depicted on the right. 
He is being awoken. It's in that exact moment of being awoken by two frantic disciples. And if you look closely near the bottom of the boat, near the bottom of the portrait, there's one of the disciples in a red tunic who's leaning over the side of the boat, actually vomiting over the side is what's being depicted. Now, I would say this is a rather unpleasant but highly realistic detail. If you've ever been out in heavy waters, you know that yeah, that doesn't take long for the stomach to get turned upside down. Now, from that guy leaning over the side, if you look just to his left, at the bottom center of the boat, there was another disciple wearing a blue coat, and he's holding on to the rope, and he's looking directly out towards the viewer. Now, this man is actually a self-portrait of Rembrandt, the artist who included himself as one of the disciples in Jesus' boat. Now, there's different speculation and theories as to why Rembrandt included himself in this boat as one of the disciples. But it seems to me to be Rembrandt's way of saying that in a spiritual sense, we can all include ourselves as one of those fearful disciples in Jesus' boat on that stormy Sea of Galilee. For just like them, so too in our following after Christ, we all must face a variety of storms as we go through this journey of faith. These storms can fill us like those disciples with anxiety. They cause us to, like them, cry out fearfully, Lord, don't you care? And they can even test our faith to the very breaking point, where when all seems lost, it is the ultimate test of how will we react? How will I respond when all hope seems lost? How will I react? Will I just keep trying to row harder keep trying to solve my own problems? Or will I just give up and say, what's the point? There's no use and just go out with a whimper. Or will we learn to look to Jesus, to cry out to him, to put all of our faith in him and in his divine power to calm our storm and to see us, see us safely through to the other side? Now, we're all familiar with the details of this story. It's one of the most famous and well-known stories in all the Gospels. So allow me to present to you five, four lessons today that we can learn from this famous and well-known story. The first lesson I'll draw for your attention today, lesson number one, is this. You can be close to the Lord and still encounter storms. You can be close to the Lord and still encounter storms. Mark 4, 35 to 37. Please open your Bibles and let's look at this story once more. Verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now here we see that the disciples are right where they're supposed to be. They are at Jesus' side. They are with him in the ministry. He has called them, come follow me. They have heeded the call and they're doing exactly what he has called them to do. Now he has given them further instruction, which they are obeying. Jesus said, grab the boat. He may have been preaching from it that day. We learned earlier in Mark that he would often do that when the crowds pressed. He says, get the boat. We're going across the sea. 
We're going to the other side. And so they obey. They get the boat and they set out to sea. Now, if I put myself in the shoes of one of the disciples that night, having Jesus literally, physically with me in the boat, I'm of the assumption that it's going to be a safe trip across to the other side. In fact, I'm expecting nothing less than smooth sailing and perhaps the Lord might even orchestrate a, just a perfect tailwind that night to just speed it right across. Smooth sailing and nothing but. But instead, they get the exact opposite. A furious squall. The word in, in uh, the one translation is a great storm and that word great from the Greek, is the word mega. It's it's where we get our term for something being mega, big. It was a mega storm. They're expecting smooth sailing, and instead they get a mega storm. Definitely not what they expected. And so after fighting this storm and realizing that it's beyond their ability, that that the boat is almost swamped, What are the very first words out of their mouths? We've already read them multiple times this morning. The very first words are, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? You see, at that point, the disciples had this basic view that so long as they were with Jesus, close to Jesus, everything would be okay. Everything would be smooth sailing, both literally and figuratively. So then when this first big storm, this first big test comes their way, they immediately jump to questioning whether or not Jesus cares about them. Or would he in fact just let them drown? Now before we go look down our noses at these disciples and their doubt of whether or not Jesus cared for them, how often don't we do much the same thing? For in the same way, even, even those of us who would consider ourselves devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we also can think that sometimes because I'm a devoted follower of Christ, I should be exempt from storms. I should be immune. The Lord should just smooth those out for me. And so then when those storms inevitably do come our way, then immediately our first instinct is to begin to question, why, Lord? Don't you care about me? Why wouldn't you have just dissipated this storm so I don't have to go through it? Why not just immediately take it away? But as this story clearly demonstrates, you can be literally right in the boat with Jesus and still encounter a mega storm. Now, our storms, of course, can come in a wide variety of ways. Yes, there are physical storms in this world as well, but there are also other types, health storms, financial storms, political storms, Emotional storms, spiritual storms, marital storms, relational storms of all types and stripes. And just like the fierce storms on the Sea of Galilee, they can often strike us suddenly with little or no warning. And so listen, just because you encounter a storm or are perhaps in the middle of a storm, listen, This does not mean that Jesus has stopped caring about you. This does not mean even that he is punishing you for something. Now, one caveat here is that, yes, sometimes the storms that we encounter are a consequence of sin that we have committed. 
Sometimes that is the case, but not always. For consider that before getting into the boat, before, Jesus already knew that the storm was coming. This wasn't a surprise to the Lord when he said, pull up the boat, boys, we're going across. He knew what was in store for them that night. He could have said, let's shelter on land before we head across. But no, Jesus deliberately sent himself and the disciples out into the lake that night to face this storm rather than avoid it. And it begs the question, why? Why would he deliberately aim himself and his disciples into the path of a mega storm? Why? Well, he did it for a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons was to teach his disciples a very important lesson. For the Lord knows that there are some lessons of faith that can only be learned in the classroom of a storm and nowhere else. So are you going through some sort of a storm in life right now? Or perhaps you've just been through one. Well, you shouldn't be surprised by that. You shouldn't be surprised. For as Peter, one of the disciples who was on the boat that night, he wrote years later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Rather, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And so Peter, he learned that when these storms, these trials come, don't be surprised. This isn't strange for a follower of Christ. We still have storms that we must face. The main difference is that he is in the boat. He is with us in the storm. So lesson one, you can be close to the Lord and yet encounter storms. Now on to lesson two. The Lord uses storms to test and purify our faith. When the disciples awoke Jesus, he immediately asked them two questions after having dealt with the storm. Number one, why are you so afraid? And number two, do you still have no faith? Now, in the previous chapters, as we've come through this series in Mark, we've seen that Jesus had already demonstrated his divine power in a variety of ways. He had done numerous miracles of physical healing. He had also taught a number of parables about faith, the nature of faith, the nature of his word, how it is like sowing a seed into the soil of our hearts, which will then grow upward and outward into the fruit of our actions. But then, like any good teacher, Jesus, having taught them the theory first in the classroom, so to speak, he's now giving them their first big practical test, an examination, if you will, in the real world. And so here in this test, the pass-fail portion is this. Would the disciples remember Jesus' words when they first got onto the boat? What were Jesus' first words in getting the boat out and heading out to sea? If you look at the story, you can read them. He says to them, let us cross over to the other side. Did Jesus say, let us go out and drown in the sea? Then it could, you know, that would have been plain. No, Jesus said, we're going to cross over to the other side. So if Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, would they believe his word? Would they have enough faith to believe that when this incredible barrier has come against the fulfilling of his word, that he would be able to deal with it? Would he have the power to see them safely across in spite of the dire circumstances? 
Well, we know the answer to this question. The pass-fail with the disciples was they failed miserably. They, they didn't think in that moment about what Jesus had already revealed to them, about what he had already taught them, about faith and about his power. And so they thought, nope, we're going to drown out here, and he doesn't even care. And so Jesus, as a good teacher, having dealt with the situation, it's the teaching moment, the corrective questions. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, in the same way, the Lord likewise uses storms in our lives to test and purify our faith. Returning to Peter, again, one of the men who failed the test of faith that night. Much later, having learned from this in other lessons, he writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So Peter, having looked back over his life and his time with the Master, he recognizes that each and every one of these trials, these storms, they were tests for his good to purify, to refine and strengthen his faith, that in the end, yes, they would be proved genuine, because his faith and our faith is of more value even than gold. It is precious because it is our faith in Christ and in him alone that saves us. And so these tests are not just something to push off to the side and say, let's just get it over with already. The tests are actually the main point of this life, our sanctification in Christ. This is the whole agenda of what God is doing in our lives. And so rather than seeing these as inconveniences or interruptions or annoyances, When the storms come, we can learn to say, here is an incredible opportunity. Here is an incredible lesson, a test for me to become more like Christ as my faith is purified. And so here are some of the tests that the Lord brings our way. There's a variety of them, and I'll share with you three of them. And for the sake of memory, they all start with the letter P. So three Tests, three types of tests, all starting with the letter P. The first type of test is the pressure test. The pressure test. The pressure test has one primary question, and it is this. When you are pushed beyond your absolute limit to handle something, how will you respond? Now here it's helpful for us to remember that John Mark, the author of this gospel, He had Simon Peter as his primary source for this writing, for this account. So he's getting this eyewitness account from Peter about the storm and what happened that night. Now, not only was Peter in the boat that night, but he, as you'll recall, was an experienced fisherman, along with his brother Andrew and, of course, James and John as well. These four men had spent a good chunk of their life out sailing on these very same waters on the Sea of Galilee. They they were no newbies when it came to navigating storms or water. They knew how to handle things. They knew the right things to do. And so when we read that it was a furious squall, a mega storm, waves so big they're swamping the boat, and that finally the disciples were so fearful that they would drown, that they cry out to Jesus we can trust that this is not an exaggeration from a few landlubbers who don't know a big storm when they see it. 
This wouldn't be like a farm boy being like, oh, those were 10-foot-high waves. No, they weren't, right? These are experienced fishermen. This is not an exaggeration that they are fearing for their lives. So now let's focus on Peter for a moment. A seasoned fisherman, we know he is bold, he is courageous. He's not the first guy to admit weakness. So when a man like him is at the point of crying out, we're going to drown, he has been pushed, he has been pressed beyond his breaking point. He is beyond his absolute limit. How does he respond? In faith? No. He, like the others, responds in complete fear and in doubt to the point of questioning whether Jesus even cared about them. And so this pressure test revealed the ugly truth about the current state of Peter's faith. It was not nearly as strong as good old Peter thought it was that night, was it? The pressure test revealed the true quality of his faith that it was lacking. So, have you ever had a pressure test in your life? (laughs) Of course you have, right? We all have. Perhaps you're facing a pressure test Right now, how are you responding? For if our default response to pressure, to being pushed beyond our absolute limit, is to become fearful, or doubtful, or just depressed, and despairing, or or angry, lashing out at God for not meeting our need, or, or calming our storm, and even questioning God's care for us, or perhaps in, in pressure, we then turn to that vice, to that, that besetting sin that comforts us in our time of weakness. Whatever the, the result of this pressure we're feeling, when we turn anywhere other than to Christ, it reveals something about our faith. It is a mirror. And this mirror often reveals to us the ugly truth, just like Peter, that the true state of our faith is not as strong as we think it is. And therefore, it reveals something that with humility, we can learn. And with humility, we can admit the ugly truth that yes, my faith is in need of refining. My faith is in need of purification. And Lord, you are the only one who can do that for me. Now I can tell you from many personal experiences with pressure tests, I can assure you, that they're not a lot of fun. But as the Lord knows, they are very necessary. They are necessary for revealing the true state of our faith, for refining us, purifying us, that we will learn to rely less and less on ourselves and more and more on God. The Apostle Paul perhaps understood this better than anyone He probably endured more pressure tests for more prolonged period than any other single man in all of history, at least in my view. He wrote of one of these pressure tests in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God, who can raise the dead. Paul recognized a pressure test was an opportunity to learn something very important. Not to rely on our own strength, but rather on God, the only one who has the power even over life and death. 
Second is the people test. First, we have the pressure test. Second, we have the people test. Sometimes the truth is God will put people in our path, people in our life, who will test and stretch our faith. These people may be those who rub us the wrong way. Perhaps it's the sort of person who just, for whatever reason, counters your every belief. They'll argue your every opinion. They'll criticize you with sharp words, sting you with callous actions, or just have that uncanny ability to find your one weak spot and just keep poking it, if for nothing else than their own amusement. The people test. Have you ever faced the people test? (laughs) Of course you have. We all have. We're probably facing some right now as we speak. The people test. You'll have one today, you'll have one tomorrow and next week and the week after that. Why? Because unless you're a hermit who lives in a hole in the ground, people are in your life. People are around you all the time. And this is a fact of life. It's one of the most frequent tests that we will ever encounter. And I sometimes, when I think about this people test, I ask the question, why, Lord? Why do you bring these people across our paths, these people across my way, And he gently responds, because I love people. And Danny, that person that you're struggling with right now, I love so much that I died for them. And that always brings me back to center. Because the very person that I might find the most unlovable, the person that I might most say, yes, they are my enemy, Jesus says, I love them so much that I have already died for them. Now that's a high standard. And then it goes further because Jesus didn't just leave it for us to fill in the blanks. He gave us very explicit instructions when it comes to the people test. Jesus made it plain that when it comes to people, we are to love unconditionally. We are to go to the point of praying for our enemies. And those who persecute us, returning not with, with insult or with persecution in return, but with blessing and with seeking to do good for them. And not just in a glossy sort of a way, he gets down into the nitty-gritty. Not with eye for eye, insult for insult, slight for slight, gossip for gossip. The Bible makes plain in the people test, we are to learn to return to sharp words with blessing to hatred with acts of kindness, to malice with forgiveness, to persecution with prayer, learning to make allowance for each other's faults, to give others the grace that we so desperately need in return. For just as we have freely received grace from the Lord, now we must learn to give grace to others. Freely you have received, freely give. This is the people test, and it's embedded right in the heart of the Lord's Prayer that we prayed earlier this morning. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The people test. It's at the heart of the Lord's Prayer. It's one that the Lord will bring us early and often because, not to punish us, because he desires that we would become more like him who on the cross, while he hung there dying, and they heaped insults on him, he did not reply with insult, but with prayer, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. The people test is our greatest opportunity to become more like Jesus. So let's not look at it with resentment, but instead say, yes, Lord, this person's grinding my gears right now. Thank you for this test that I might become more like you. And then pray and ask the Lord how he would have you respond in this test with this person. The third P is this, the persistence test. This test asks the question, when a storm comes, will I continue onward or will I give up and quit? It's inevitable in our walk with the Lord that at some point we will hit a point, a storm, an obstacle that just screams at us, quit, give up, it's not worth it. And when that test comes, you know, in a moment of strength, we'll say, I'll, I'll ace that test. It'll be no big deal. But in that moment when it's screaming at you, just give up. Why are you continuing on? You will feel it to the very core of your soul. And so in that moment, while a, a weaker faith may seem perfectly fine and adequate on a day that has smooth sailings in a season of life where everything is roses, a weaker faith will be found sorely lacking in that furious squall, in that moment when it's screaming, give up and give in. But the kind of faith that God is looking for in all of us, the one that he wants to grow in each of us, is one that will persevere in that moment. No matter how big the test, no matter how much it's screaming, give up, it's going to cling in faith to Jesus and say, I will persevere I will hang on even if it kills me. No matter the cost, I won't quit. James 1.12 says of this sort of a test, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Sometimes I've, I've had my, my cell phone start ringing and buzzing like crazy in my pocket and I scramble to look at it and the screen is giving one of those emergency broadcast alerts. You ever got one of those? They kind of scare you. They're, they're startling. But the odd time it's happened, it says right there on the screen, this is a test. <laughs> this is only a test. Oh, thanks. I can calm my heart down there for a moment. In the same way, when we face these storms, remember, this is a test. This is only a test. So persevere. Press on. Now having looked at the three subsets of the pressure test, the people test, and the perseverance test, we proceed now to our next primary lesson. Lesson number three. Storms force us to cry out to Jesus. Now as we've already established... At least four of the disciples on the boat that night were experienced fishermen who would undoubtedly already have used all of their skill and experience to navigate that storm. Now, finally, they've reached the end of themselves. Jesus has, is having a much-needed nap, which is a, a side point there on how exhausted Jesus was as a man from the ministry. He has been ministering to crowds 12-plus hours a day for weeks on end. He is exhausted he can sleep even in a storm. But finally, they're crying out to him. They're shaking him. Wake up, Lord. Now, it's a human tendency, I think, often rooted in our pride. We like to handle things on our own, don't we? I don't need help. I've got this. But then when the truth finally becomes painfully clear that, no, I don't got this, 
I need help. And it's at that moment we're forced to cry out to the Lord. Now you may be going through some sort of a serious storm right now. And you may be wondering, what should I do? Well, my advice is simple. This is where it starts. Humble yourself to cry out to Jesus. Don't try to handle it on your own. Don't say, I got this, I'm going to tough it out. Cry out to Jesus. Earlier, the better. I believe I was around 18 years old when I was on one of my canoe trips with my buddy Steve. And we were canoeing the Pembina River in early spring, just after the flood runoff. And we were entering Rock Lake from the west. And just as we entered Rock Lake, this spring snowstorm, I believe it was late April, this large spring snowstorm with strong west winds suddenly came up out of the west. It hit us from behind, and it began chasing us eastward along Rock Lake. Now, at first, we thought this was great fun. We were picking up tremendous speed. The wind was at our backs. But as we got more and more towards the middle of the lake, the swells kept getting bigger and bigger until finally some of them were breaking up over the side of our gear-filled canoe and the boat was starting to take on water. Now, I was in the front of the boat, so I didn't immediately see that the water was starting to fill the boat gradually, but Steve from the back soon informed me that things were starting to get serious and maybe we should think about heading for shore. So we tried to start heading for shore, but by this point, the waves were so big that any moment we would try to go to the side, the waves would hit us this way, and we knew one wave was going to capsize us. So we had only one option, and that was to keep riding the waves in a straight fashion and try to angle ourselves towards the shore. And so as this is going, we, we realize that we're, we're out of our depth here, we're in the middle of the lake at this point. The waves are getting bigger. This water is icy, icy cold. And we know, and I know in the back of my mind, I'm smart enough, even at 18, to know that hypothermia is real. And that if I go in that water in the middle of the lake, it's going to be bad news. And then it happened. An extra big wave hit the stern. It spun us sideways at the bottom of the swell, and as we're at the bottom of the swell, I remember looking up to my right and looking up at the next wave that was coming at us. And in that moment, it was one of those life flashing before my eyes moments. I've had a couple in my life, and that was one of them. Everything slowed down because I knew that if, if this wave took us over and we were in that lake, that could be it. And so I remember as I grabbed the side of the canoe and I braced for impact, I instinctively leaned into the wave as it hit us. But just before the wave hit, I remember all of a sudden involuntarily crying out, Jesus, help us! I didn't pre-think it, it just came out of my mouth. We leaned into that wave and somehow we didn't flip. And it came right over us and I remember somehow with the with the boat half filled with water at this point Steve says after gear was starting to float up actually helping some buoyancy at this point gear was floating upward we somehow frantically paddled we got straightened out before the next wave hit we rode that one somehow and the next and the next and Steve said after in between sets he'd been furiously bailing water out of the back and 
And somehow we angled in finally to shore. We landed at the campground soaked and shivering. I hit the shore. My legs didn't work because they already seized up. We crawled up the bank, and it just so happened that the bathroom of the campground was already unlocked for the spring for some reason. The hot showers were running and working, and there was even a dryer that we could use to dry out our clothing and our sleeping bags for the night. Yeah, Jesus heard my cry. He answered in a wonderful way. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to him. What are we waiting for? Our pride, our own ability, what, what are we waiting for? Cry out to him. If you're facing a storm, get serious about prayer. Get down on your knees before him and diligently seek his face, for he is not far from you. Cry out to him, seek him, he will hear you. He will meet you where you are in your deepest time of need. He is listening. Yes, he cares more than you know. And yes, he has divine ability to help you through whatever storm you are facing. And this leads us now to our fourth and final lesson from our story today. Lesson number four, Jesus has the divine power over the climate, our anxiety, and our fears. Mark 4, 39 to 41, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm, He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this man that even the wind and the waves should obey him? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves should obey him? There was only one answer that truly satisfies. He is the son of God. He is the logos, the divine word through whom all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things invisible and visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So as incredible as it seems, the same divine voice, the Logos, that called the wind and water into existence at the beginning of time is the same voice that the wind and the waves instantly recognized and obeyed on that stormy night on the Sea of Galilee. So what does this reveal to us about the Lord's power and authority even over the climate today? Has he relinquished it? Has he given up control? Is our world and its climate going to suddenly crumble and come crashing down around us without his say-so? Well, you've likely noticed that there are many prophets of doom out there, many loud voices saying, yes, yes, we are in a a climate change crisis. Our our world is crumbling down around us. And, And somehow, further than that, it's up to mankind to figure out a way to solve this problem. It's up to us to avert this looming climate catastrophe. But is it really? You will recall that the first climate catastrophe that happened on earth was the great flood of Noah's day, which happened at the Lord's direction and not man's. And so today we still live under and can trust the Lord's promise That as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, 
will never cease. Now, of course, we are called to be good stewards to care for this world that God has entrusted to us. But at no point has God ever relinquished his divine control over his creation, and that includes the climate. And there are many scriptures that speak to the climate, the wind, the rains, the hail, the snow. It's all at his bidding. He is ultimately in control of his creation. He presides over it. He holds it together. So therefore, we can trust that he will continue to hold it together until the very end when he says so. And not a moment sooner. So don't listen to all the prophets of doom telling us that somehow this is all going to come burning down around us. That we're going to roast or drown or freeze or starve by such and such a year. Instead, put your faith in the one that even the wind and the waves obey. For he is Lord of creation. He is the Lord also over all of our fears and anxieties. And so we can trust him today. And so, in conclusion, let's learn these four lessons of faith from this incredible text. Let us not only learn them in theory, but let us learn them by putting them into practice in our storms. Whether you're facing one right now or storms that we inevitably will face in the future. Lesson number one, you can be close to the Lord and still encounter storms. Lesson number two, the Lord uses these storms to test and purify our faith. Lesson three, storms force us to cry out to Jesus. And lesson four, Jesus has divine power over the climate, our anxiety, and our fears. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you today to recognize your divine power over every aspect of life. You are Lord of creation. You called it into being at your command, including us. We are yours. And Lord, this creation, even the wind and the waves, hear your voice. They recognize their maker and they obey. And so Lord, how much more can we, created in your image, hear your voice, recognize the voice of our creator, and respond in faith and obedience today. Lord, help us to learn from this incredible story, these lessons that those disciples of yours learned in that practicum of a storm all those years ago. And Lord, we recognize that many of us are in the practicum of a storm right now today. And so Lord, help us to take these lessons to heart in a practical way. Ultimately, Lord, help us to cry out to you, to look to you, not ourselves, For you alone have the power and the authority to deal with our hearts and to deal with the storm. And so, Lord, we put our trust in you. Strengthen our faith, we pray, that when, having stood the test, we will come into your presence and receive those crowns of glory to those who have persevered through it all and to the very end. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.